Let's hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 4, starting with verse 11. At that time, this people in Jerusalem will be told, A scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty and at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins. Before the Lord, before his fierce anger, this is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore, the earth will mourn and the heavens above grow dark, because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided and will not turn back. The word of the Lord. A reading from the first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, starting with verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. The gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. The gospel of the Lord. 
Good to see you all this morning. Good to see your faces. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about celebration. Um, at the heart of Christianity is celebration. So each Sunday is really a banquet rejoicing in the reality that Christ is risen from the dead. In fact, we've talked about this before, but every Sunday is kind of a mini Easter for Christians. So every Sunday we have a banquet and we celebrate this new reality that we live into. Celebration, of course, does not exclude grief and pain. Grief and pain are real in the world and real in our lives. Christians grieve alongside the world that grieves. Being a Christian, though, means also letting go of something, even as we cling on to something. So there's a natural grief that goes along with that. In the waters of baptism, we die to the old life. We let it go. It's in the past, for God has acted in our lives in a new way. That's what Christians affirm. And our readings this week remind us that God does not give up on us, that even as we turn back to old ways and things that aren't best for us, that God pursues us even when we're lost. We are found in him. Our Jeremiah reading reminds us of the reality of that old life to which we often look back to, the reality of sin. Now, when I first started preaching years ago, uh, it was really common for preachers to say, people don't talk about sin anymore. Um, it's just common to say people just let everything go and everything's acceptable and we just don't talk about sin anymore. But I actually don't think that's true. Today, we are hyper aware that th there are things that are wrong in other people, <laughs> that there are things that are wrong in the world and things that other people do wrong. We are quick in our culture to point out who has offended, who has hurt, who has been ignorant. We now have conservative sins and liberal sins. But sin is definitely something that is called out on a regular basis. There may be different definitions of sin, but it's called out regularly. And I think one of the reasons why this has resurfaced in our culture is we can't squelch in the human heart the longing for justice. We long for things to be put right. And we know that there can only be justice done when there's judgment. So you can only call something right and to make it right when you first shine a light on it and determine what is broken and what is wrong. And that is judgment. Judgment is this idea of shining a light on that which isn't, isn't right, isn't broken, so that it might be healed. And that's what's happening here in Jeremiah. God, through the prophet, is revealing the hearts of Israel, the individual hearts, but the hearts of the community as well. There's a judgment that's happening. Just a little historical background on this. So Jeremiah wrote these words after the reign of Manasseh. And Manasseh was seen probably as Israel's worst king in history. So this was a pretty devastating time. He ruled for 55 years, and he did a lot of strange stuff during this dark time. He emphasized and encouraged pagan worship, which was characterized by sexual orgies and human sacrifices. He placed cult prostitutes at the shrines throughout the countryside. He brought in wizards and sorcerers. He burned his own son as part of a pagan sacrifice of witchcraft. So we're talking Game of Thrones stuff in the ancient world is really what's going on here. But worse than all of, his, all of those things was, was seen as his actions towards the temple where God's presence resided. So Manasseh took this special place, this place where heaven and earth was supposed to meet, and he brought in um, elements and relics of pagan uh, worship. He brought in magicians and prostitutes and idols shaped like beasts and monsters that were supposed to stand for idols for lust and for greed. So Israel, we see, turned to false gods. And we look at this in the ancient world and go, why would you worship false gods? It doesn't make sense. Why would you bow down to some statue instead of the one true God who delivered you? 
But really, the reason why they do this is the same reason why all of us turn to counterfeits in our life. In our brokenness, we look to satisfy our need for violence, for othering, the, uh, othering another person, for rejecting them, for vengeance, for the objectification of others, for sex, and then for control. There's some way that I can control my life, whether it's the fruitfulness of my business or my crops in the ancient world or fertility or whatever that is. So we turn to those idols as well. They just look different. 55 years of this, and the true faith in Yahweh had dissipated among the people. So over the course of 55 years, it had gone away. There were a few faithful people, a few older people who kind of remembered, but they lived as a minority. And most of the people lived in this syncretistic kind of way where they worshiped all kinds of other gods. Jeremiah describes the world at this time as waste and void. And that's what happens when we rebel against God, when we turn against God's desire for us and who we are, then it simply leads to emptiness. This is a tangent here, but I think growing up in church, sometimes we were taught if we do the wrong things, then God kind of punishes us. There's a punitive kind of sense. But I think we see more in the biblical story this idea of when we do things that aren't in congruence with God's desires for us, it just leads to emptiness. That that's where it goes. It doesn't go anywhere. It's hollow. Manasseh then died, and Amon, his son, succeeded him as king. Things didn't change. So the people rose up and they killed Amon. Then all of a sudden, Amon's eight-year-old son, Josiah, becomes the king, an eight-year-old king. Now, like many this week, I've been watching and listening to the stories of the life of the late Queen Elizabeth. Um, now, the reality of empire and colonization, Christendom, are challenging and broken and messy. We have to acknowledge that. And yet it is clear that Queen Elizabeth, and all of her failures, like all of us have failures, sought to live her life as a disciple of Jesus. It was her desire. And as we look back on the story of her reign, we see that she became queen at the age of 25. Now, it was kind of a fluke in some sense, because if all went according to plan, Elizabeth never would have become queen. Her uncle, not her father, was in line for succession. But he, if you know the story, he abdicated the throne. In the same way, if her parents had had any boys, the boys would have been the heir to the throne, not Elizabeth. So all of these things kind of changed. They were different. Nonetheless, at the age of 85, she became queen. Now, think about Josiah in the ancient world, taking the throne at the age of eight in a time of incredible turmoil and wickedness and idolatry. And this is the world into which Jeremiah is speaking. He uses apocalyptic language to describe, describe the devastation that has happened because of Manasseh and because of Ammon and because of all of the idolatry. In fact, Jeremiah says in these apocalyptic terms, the mountains are quaking, the hills are swaying, there's no people or birds in the land, it's become a desert. He's using this strong language to say it's over. All of our faithfulness is gone. And then here comes Josiah, a kid with no plan, no example, no blueprint, a year younger than Lucy, I can't fathom that, who becomes the king. Everything he was ever taught was evil by his ancestors. And things begin to change during his reign. He starts, now he gets a little older when this happens, but he starts by cleaning out the temple. Why? Because if you can reorient worship, 
you can reorient desire and love towards the one true God, it changes everything. That's why we believe formative liturgical worship matters because what we do with worship in our hearts, it actually changes. It has a way of going out and changing our lives. But while he's cleaning up the temple, the priest Hilkiah finds an old book, which happens to be the book of Deuteronomy, which had been long lost. Deuteronomy instructs the people on right from wrong. So Josiah hears the book of Deuteronomy and he immediately puts it into action. I picture this young kid at this point. I think he's a teenager. He's maybe in his 20s. I don't remember exactly. But he gets to this point. He comes of age and he's had no examples in the past. Everything's been evil. Everything's been broken. And then he gets the book of Deuteronomy. He's like, all right, this is what we're going to (laughs) do. This is what God is saying. And it's in this context that Jeremiah the prophet says, first, we got to tear it all down. We have to break it down to the studs. Verse 11 says, the hot wind is coming. But, Jeremiah says, in case you think that the hot wind's purpose is just to whittle down to the faithful people or to cleanse them, no. He says that's not the purpose. The purpose is to leave it desolate and start all over again. That's what the prophet says. Now, this is often the case in our lives. We may not see ourselves putting up statues of pagan gods or participating in orgies. But left to our own devices, we do wander to counterfeit worship. We do pursue things that are false. We believe myths about ourselves and our value. God's love often requires the complete surrender, the complete breaking down of these things. Not just adding bits here and there, but a full surrender and a full trust. And it means allowing God to work through our weaknesses rather than our strengths, which is so fascinating that God's renewal begins with an eight-year-old kid. It's when we're broken before the Lord that he shows his beauty in and through us. His word is always speaking to us and rebuilding. And then verse 27 says, Yahweh will not destroy the land completely. We see in the story that human beings are not on our own capable of faithfulness. We're not able to be fully the image bearers we've been created to be, and yet God doesn't give up on us. It's not a throwing away. It's a let's begin again with a place of surrender. There is one who is faithful, Christians believe, who's the true image and reflection of God, and our hope is not in ourselves but in him. This theme is also present in our Timothy reading. So we hear Paul leading out of his weakness. He shares his own story of brokenness and the incredible grace of God. And he sandwiches it in between, see in verse 12 and verse 17, giving thanks to God. So Paul, if you know the story, was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was a violent person towards the Christians. He calls himself here the worst sinner or the chief of all the sinners. Yet God did a miracle in his life. No one is beyond God's reach. And I just want to read these two verses from, that Paul says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What Paul's saying here is if God has turned him, done this miracle in his life, There's nothing God can't do. N.T. Wright describes it this way. God has taken the wildest, most violent of blaspheming persecutors and has transformed him into not only a believer, but also a trusted apostle and evangelist. If God could do that, there's nobody out there. 
No heart so hard, no anger so bitter that it remains outside the reach of God's patient mercy. Notice that God is the subject, the one who's done the action. God doesn't recruit Paul. Well, Paul's a pretty good guy, so I'm going to go down and recruit him and pull him up and just make him a little bit better. No, he breaks Paul down. He chooses the most unlikely. He chooses us, chooses him in his weakness. And this is who our God is, the one who is merciful, the one who invites and receives even the most unlikely. And God is committed to us. He's committed to the process of shaping us and forming us. So yes, God did a miracle in Paul's life, but he didn't just leave him then. He continued to form him and shape him, and he does the same with us. When Paul reflects on all that's happened in his life, he responds with praise. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There's this really great uh, book of parables, super provocative and a little edgy, so I'll warn you about that. But uh, there's an author by the name of Peter Rollins, and he wrote a book called The Orthodox Heretic. And it's basically a collection of modern day parables to get you to think about your faith. And uh, this story, this one parable that he tells is about a young prince. And he lives in an empire ruled by his father, the king, who's benevolent and kind. But this young prince is really suspicious of the Christian community within the empire. He's really skeptical. He hates the church. He's been disillusioned by them. And he believes that they're just a bunch of liars and hypocrites. In fact, this prince uses his power to actually arrest priests because he assumes that they're all just criminals and throw them in prison and throw faithful, um, faithful Christians in prison as well. And he's so angry with the church. And late one evening, he has a plan. He concocts a plan. He goes to this faithful priest who has a great reputation in all of the, the empire. And he goes to this priest, and he knows that this priest is poor, and he's struggling. And so he pulls him aside in the, the dead of night, and he says, I have a proposal for you. I have the power to reach every person in this kingdom through the printed press. For 10,000 rupees, would you write a letter to be dispersed throughout the kingdom in telegrams and newspapers, informing people that you are nothing but a liar and a hypocrite. The older priest, maybe surprised, agrees to his offer on three conditions. First, the prince must leave he and his church alone. Leave him alone. Second, the prince must release all of his brothers and sisters who are innocent of any crime. And then the third condition, he says... 10,000 rupees is a great deal of money, but I'm a poor man. You will have to give me time to raise it. Think about it for a minute. The priest has misunderstood what's happening here. He's being offered 10,000 rupees to write this letter, but he thinks that he's being asked to pay 10,000 rupees to write this letter. The priest is so ready to admit his own failings so open about the fact that without God's grace, he is a fraud, that he was ready to pay the prince for the opportunity to proclaim it to the world. In his commentary on the parable, Rollins says, like the apostle Paul, who proclaimed that he was the worst of sinners, people of faith will not only have profound understanding of their own weaknesses, but also freely acknowledge them. Instead of seeking to be among the wise, the faithful will admit to their foolishness. 
For it is through an acknowledgement of our weakness and foolishness that the power of wisdom and faith are expressed. It is through the acknowledgement of our weakness and foolishness that the power of wisdom and faith are expressed. This morning, um, as I was preparing to come to church, I wanted to get here really early. I knew that I don't normally do music. I wanted to prepare a little bit. I have certain kind of benchmarks of when I try to get here on time, depending on how much I have to do. So I did it. I, I got here early, and I was kind of rushing around, and I made it here. I even stopped for coffee on the way. I had a little time, got here, got in the place, and realized that I had left my bag with all the liturgy back at my house. Okay, And I, I was like, okay, can I actually get it, or do I need to get it? Okay, I got to go back home. And, and I really got pretty mad at myself about this. <laughs> and I was like, Preston, you can't. One of, one of my things that I just get so frustrated with myself about is my inability to remember small details that are actually very important. And so I had put it, I'd stuck it in the wrong car because I was doing something or whatever. And, and I just found myself just kind of beating myself up and just going, gosh, why can't you get this together? I, when I was a teenager, I used to do things like leave my computer bag like at concerts or something, like just ridiculous, stupid things. I would lose jackets and I do, you know, all these kind of things. And just like, why can't you fix this? Why can't you get this together? And, and gosh, maybe I've told you guys about the Easter Sunday, like five or six years ago, where we forgot the fried chicken and everybody was waiting around for that. And I'm like, why can't I remember this stuff? And just so frustrated. And I, I remember hearing the Holy Spirit speak to me in that moment. I'm like, I guess I'm just never going to be good at remembering these kind of things. And, and I felt like the, the Spirit said, well, bummer, I guess you're going to have to depend on me. And I was like, well, of course. And there's a, there's a moment in this, in all of our lives, where we come, there's just some things, it doesn't mean we don't work on things, and we don't improve, try to get better at things, but, but there's a moment where we realize, gosh, I am broken, and I need to rest in my weakness, because it's in my weakness that he is made strong. And you'll find in your life, and I found in my life, that it's actually in the places where we're the weakest that God shows up in pretty profound ways because we have to surrender to him in those kinds of moments. Embracing our weakness, what it does is it centers the discussion on God, not on us. That he is faithful when we are not faithful. And that's what Paul does here. It's not a coincidence that Paul's story, like I said, is sandwiched between expressions of thanks, thankfulness and praise to God. Because he says, without God, I'm nothing. We see this radical mercy and inclusion of Jesus clearly displayed in our gospel reading as we have um, some Pharisees grumbling about him eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now, a lot of the opponents of Jesus in the gospels are trying to pin him down. They're trying to figure out what political party he fits with and what way is he responding to Roman oppression and is he telling them that they can be set free from Roman oppression? But what's interesting is as the people are trying to pin him down on what political party he's a part of, the people who start to gather around him are not political ideologues. They're people who have been rejected by other, every other group. The Gospels call them tax collectors and sinners. They didn't follow the law the right way. They were despised. They didn't have enough influence or status, and they certainly weren't valued by the Roman officials. Tax collectors were unpopular because they literally made their living off of cooperating with the empire to collect taxes. So people got mad at them. They also came in regular contact with Gentiles, which would have made them, give them risk of being ritually unclean. Then sinners is more of a general category. These who are seen as hopelessly irreligious. They're not perceived to care enough about the law or about God. 
Now, this is fascinating. In the verse right before this, so verse chapter 14, verse 35, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then chapter 15, verse 1, says that the tax collectors and the sinners came near to hear him. So there's a point that Luke is making here. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, the ones who have ears to hear are those who have been rejected by everybody else. They're those who don't have a status to rest on. Those are the ones who perceive the kingdom of God. When Jesus tells the parable of the one sheep and the 99 sheep, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Need no repentance is interesting because it begs the question, are there any who need no repentance? Jesus is saying, no, the teachers of the law, they need repentance, but they don't realize it. They think they're supposed to tell everybody else that they need to repent, that they're supposed to put up these walls. They haven't taken their calling as God's people seriously. And in this sense, Jesus is saying the tax collectors and sinners are closer to the kingdom of God than these because the Pharisees don't even acknowledge their weakness. They don't acknowledge their need for repentance. These parables of the sheep and of the coin and then later of the prodigal son, which we don't get today, all of them are about loss. So think for a moment about the fact that all of them, if God is the kind of hero or the central person in each of these parables, this is a story about the God who experiences loss, the God who grieves the wandering of his beloved. And yet, if a shepherd, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, it doesn't always make sense to leave your 99 alone and go after the one. That seems risky. But the cool thing we see about our God is that there is risk involved in love, and God takes the risk for us. Henry Nouwen writes, every time we make the decision to love someone, we open ourselves up to great suffering because those we most love cause us not only great joy, but also great pain. The greatest pain comes from leaving. When the child leaves home, when the husband or wife leaves for a long period of time or for good, when the beloved friend departs to another country or dies, the pain of the leaving can tear us apart. Still, listen to this, if we want to avoid the suffering of leaving, we will never experience the joy of loving. And love is stronger than fear, life stronger than death, hope stronger than despair. We have to trust that the risk of loving is always worth taking. Our God is the one of extravagant risk, who says that the one is not better than the rest of the 99, but the one is lost, and the one is loved. The parable of the lost coin is similar to the sheep. This time it's a woman searching for a coin she's lost, even when she has nine others. So she lights the lamp and sweeps the house in search of the coin. This is interesting. Ambrose from the fourth century said that he loved these three stories together. And he said that the, the shepherd going after the lost sheep represents Jesus. And the woman going after the lost coin represents the church. And then the, the father who goes after the lost son represents God the father. And so it's interesting because all of them are God in some way. But I love this idea of the church, that we are the people searching for the lost coins. That we are the ones who, in, on God's behalf, who are saying, if there are lost people out there, we ought to love them. We ought to search for them. 
When, there's, when the sheep and the coin are found, there's a party. And there's a party on earth. So we see the shepherd gathers his friends. The woman gathers her neighbors. But this party is merely a reflection of the party that's going on in heaven. In Jesus, something profound has been accomplished. The lost are found and heaven rejoices. It says the angels rejoice, heaven rejoices. When the scriptures speak of heaven, they're speaking of um, God's space, the place where God's will is fully done. When the scriptures speak of earth, they're speaking of our space, the place where we inhabit. And God's desire has always been for heaven and earth to come together. We already see this intersection all around us. So in every act of self-giving love, every um, sign of new life, we see heaven breaking into earth. Every act of faith, hope, and love. And then intentionally, the church has believed, we receive this and experience this in the sacraments, heaven and earth coming together. And there will come a day when heaven and earth will come together fully. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we see your will done fully on earth in our midst. So what do we do until that day? We look for signs of spring, signs of new life, and we celebrate them. That God is moving, God is at work, God is extravagant, and God is celebrating when people come into his kingdom. Just at the end here, um, part of the Christian life is coming to grips with the depths of our brokenness, the places where we've missed the mark. Without God, we're nothing. We move towards desolation, towards anti-creation, towards disintegration. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, you've probably heard this before, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like Israel, we worship other things. We turn to other things. The gods of production, of vengeance, of control. Yet those things are, lead to emptiness. They lead us nowhere. They're just silly. In fact, if we were to, par- if we were to quote Jeremiah, he says, we are stupid. <laughs> and yet, like with Israel, God never gives up on us. He chooses us in our weakness and in our brokenness, and he calls us to be part of his rebuilding work. God never gives up. Like Paul, each of us at times may think of ourselves as the chief of sinners. And that's exactly who God chooses. We're invited into the divine community, not because of anything we've done, but simply because we're lost and we're loved. (laughs) And this will always lead to celebration and thanksgiving. God never gives up. Like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Like the woman who turns on lights and sweeps her home looking for a precious coin. Like the father who runs to his son who has squandered his inheritance, our God seeks us out and brings us home. And this, once again, will lead to celebration and thanksgiving. But this does lead us to an important question. With whom are we celebrating? Are we living the kinds of life that beg the questions that Jesus' life begged? Why does he hang out with them? Who are those in our society that have been given up on? 
In what ways might God be calling us to those places? This means that the church will be a party-throwing people. Our doors will always be open and we will always be celebrating. One of my favorite moments at the communion table is this moment where we've gone through the liturgy, we've recognized God's presence in our midst, and then we take the elements and we, we move kind of down into the congregation. I think there's something really intentional about that moment of um, this meal being shared with others and with the world. This kind of descending into the congregation or descending into the world is really who we're called to be because this is really the reality of the incarnation. As the meal is distributed, it's an embodiment of the ways in which the life of God steps into the world pursuing those who are lost. At the same time, it's a celebration because we are the lost ones. We are the chief of sinners. <laughs> but the holy wind has been breathed on us. We've been broken down. We've been rescued. Once we were lost, but now we've been found. Amen. Amen.